in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, um, as Christians, let me just kind of kind of make a, a statement here that, that I think this whole text is going to support. As, as a Christian, you will never find yourself uh, in a space, a season, or a struggle that is unforeseen, unanticipated, or outside of the predictive preparation of God. Okay, I'm going to say that again because it's kind of a confusing sentence. As a Christian, you will never find yourself in a space, a season, or a struggle that is unforeseen, unanticipated, or outside of the preparation of God. Amen? I was sitting in Dutch Bros this morning, uh, going over my notes just kind of frantically uh, a little bit <laughs> while everybody was here setting up chairs. And, uh, and uh, this guy walked up to me and he was like, What's, what are you reading? And I was like, the Bible. He's like, what part? Um, and, uh, and, and I was like, Daniel, chapter 8. And he's like, what's it about? <laughs> I was like, this is a great test of whether I know what I'm going to say this morning. And that's so what I said. I said, uh, God knows what's going to happen, and he's going to guide his people through everything that will happen in the future. That's, that's what Daniel chapter 8 is about, okay? Have you ever been uh, a patient in a medical procedure? You know, you're sitting on the, 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 the bed thing with, like, the tissue paper that never stays there. And you're, if you're wearing shorts, it, like, sticks to your thighs, right? Uh, no? That doesn't happen to you guys? No? Okay. Just kidding. It's never stuck to my thighs. Um, <laughs> assuming that, you know, it would for some people. Anyways... You're, you're, in the, you're in the room, and, uh, and you're, the procedure's happening, you know, and then something happens that begins to make you feel like maybe things are going poorly. Like, oh, I don't know, maybe the doctor says something like, uh-oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> or whoops. Um, or maybe, like, there's that beeping in the hospital, you know, that beep, beep, beep. You're like, oh, no, what is that? It's broken. I'm broken, you know? And, 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 and it, in, the, in the instant, you're, you start to question everything, and, and what you really want is you want someone that's an expert, someone that has expertise, someone that has perspective, to say three words to you. It's okay. That's two words, actually. Heidi, that's two words. Okay. We'll talk about math later. Okay, it is okay. You're right. Okay. I was homeschooled. Forget it. The three words are, this is normal, or this is to be expected. This is, you know, we anticipated this. It's okay. You're fine. That's what you're wanting to. Now, good doctors, they typically front load a procedure, right? They sit you down and they say, here's what's probably going to happen. Here's what's very likely. This thing could go off. That thing could happen. You might feel this kind of, dis and what the reason they're doing that is they're trying to prepare you for peace in the midst of your tribulation, right? They're trying to prepare you to, to know that whatever happens, it's going to be okay, Here's another kind of illustration, and uh, this is all going somewhere. Have you ever uh, taken a rafting trip, like a, a whitewater rafting trip? And uh, I remember doing one one time, and there was like six different boats with six different guides, and we were all kind of like looking at the guides, like, which one do I want to pick? You know, we're like, I want, who's, who's, it, who's doing this for the first time? Oh, don't want your boat. You know, I, want, I, don't, I don't want the maiden voyage. I want the person that's been down this thing so many times they know it like the back of their hand, right? Uh, because we, we want someone that knows the river, right, that's going to take us down. I remember I did a, a guided raft trip in Bend, Oregon, and it was this one particular section of river that's actually pretty dangerous, and there's this one corner in some lava beds where you can actually, you could die there. It's, it's dangerous. So, uh, so we're in the boat, and wh what happens is at, at some point, we pull the boat over, and our guide gets us out of the boat, and he walks us along the river, and he says, I'm going to show you what's going to happen when we go down this. 
And I was very thankful. He had he gave the perspective and the expertise uh, to, to show us that we were going to go down this really sketchy part. And what he said was, he said, when we get to this one part, he's like, I'm going to ask you to do something that's going to sound totally counterintuitive. So I'm going to ask you to row as hard or paddle as hard as you can towards that rock. And everything in you is going to be like, what? He's like, but th- th- trust me, okay? Paddling towards that rock is the only way we're going to line up just right to go through the chute. Okay, so he took us out of the boat. He gave us the time. He, 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 he let us to s- allowed us to see it. So what happened? We get in the boat. We go down. We did exactly what he said, even though it was counterintuitive, and we made it just fine, okay? Here's the reality, okay? The reality is following Jesus is incredibly dangerous work. It's incredibly dangerous. Now, uh, counter... Uh, um, opposite of what maybe some people in white suits on television tell you, the Christian life is actually really hard, okay? It's actually really hard, and, it, and it's actually um, per design. Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be uh, beat up, that they were going to be essentially chewed up and spit out from their, their family systems. All right? he's, he's, you're going to be rejected. You're going to be hated. Um, so he told them they were going to be beat up and that they should expect it, but he told them that they were going to be victorious even though they were going to be beat up. And somehow in Western, um, you know, culture, we've, we've changed that to be like, no, if you're a Christian, you don't have to be beat up. Actually, that's not true. Jesus said, you're going to share in my suffering, but you're also going to share in my victory, right? Uh, so he's like, you're, you're going you're gonna to suffer. You're going to go through some hard things. But here's the really good news, okay? The good news is that we have someone outside the boat. We have someone that knows the course, We have someone that's planned every detail of the course. And if we're paying attention and we're paying close enough attention, he actually, at times, pulls us out of the boat and shows us what he's going to do. And the reason is because he's kind and he's good and he wants to make sure that his kids know how to go through tribulation well. He wants to to remind us that that this isn't his first time down the river. In fact, he's already plotted the right course. He knows all the pinch points and at times, listen to me, at times, he's going to ask us to do something that feels counterintuitive. He's going to ask us to, to row in a direction that feels dangerous. But the reality is, is he knows exactly where that's going to get us, and ultimately it's going to get us through the chute. Are you with me? Okay, so here's our text. Uh, our text is, is essentially like a history book. I mean, you, you'll see this as it unfolds, but it's probably one of the most specific prophecies in all the Bible regarding how things are going to unfold in a particular period of time. And what it's going to remind us of is it's going to remind us that God knows every detail. He knows what's going to happen. Okay? Uh, let me give you some introduction to chapter 8. We're going to cover a lot of ground this morning, so get ready to move quickly. And I'm going to try to front load this a little bit and give you some clarity about how to think about this chapter before we dive into it, because otherwise we'll get all kinds of lost. So we're going to cover this whole chapter. A few things about chapter 8 really quick. You can jot them down if you want. First of all, it's, uh, chapter 8 is smaller in scope than chapter 7. Okay, we took three weeks to do chapter 7. We're going to do chapter 8 in one week. It's smaller in scope. And what I mean by that is, is chapter 7 is really this um, sweeping summation of all of human history from Daniel all the way to the eschaton, which is the end of, all th- the end of, of this age. That's chapter 7. But this week... This morning, chapter 8 is much more focused in on its scope. It's actually just going to look at two of the world empires that would come up after the Babylonian Empire. It's, it's, it's going to focus in on two of the four beasts. Now, if, you've t- if this is your first week, you're like, huh? Uh, if you've been tracking with us, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Chapter 7, there were four different beasts. Uh, th- this is going to focus in more specifically on the, the, the second and the third of the beasts, which was the bear and the leopard. 
okay? And we already determined those were referring to the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. So we're going to focus more on those. Now, this uh, particular chapter is, is really uncontrolled. I don't even think I could say this word. Uh, I'm not going to use it. It's, it's, it's uncontestably, I'll use that word. It's uncontestably preterist. Do you remember what preterist means? You know, what, does anyone remember what that means from last week? Past, okay? So, so really, all scholars, even secular scholars, look at this, and they go, clearly, this is talking about something that already happened in history. And so that kind of helps us out a little bit this morning, because unlike last week, where we're like, this could be in the future, it could, th- this chapter is really about the past. It's something that, that was future to Daniel, but is past to us. Does that make sense? It was hundreds of years in the future for Daniel, but it's thousands of years really in the past for us. So just keeping that in mind. Uh, like I said, it reads like a history book, and we're going to talk a lot about history this morning. So uh, just, just be ready for that. Um, this book, or this chapter, I should say, really the whole book of Daniel, but it, it is uh, really constantly attacked and undermined by liberal scholars. And by liberal scholars, I mean those that study the Bible that are not believers. Those that would study the Bible from a position of trying to disprove its validity or authority. And the reason that they hate Daniel is because Daniel is so specific in its prophecies of historical events that we can look and prove in history and see how they happened, that they basically have to attack it or they have to surrender to God. That's the reality. Now, it might sound like an oversimplification, but, but it's not. So liberal scholars, they have, they have to decide. Either the book of Daniel was written by Daniel hundreds of years before these events, and God was giving predictive prophecy, revelation to him in a supernatural way, or the book was written later after these events already took place, and that's what they argue for. They, they said, oh, Daniel didn't write the book. It was called a pseudepigraphal book. It was a book written years later, some in the, sometime before Jesus, 100 years maybe before Jesus, when all these events had already happened, and somebody just went back and wrote them back in. Now, they do the same thing with, uh, with a lot of passages in the Old Testament. They do the same thing with Isaiah 53, which is that very specific, detailed account of how Jesus is going to suffer and die on the cross. They go, that couldn't have been written uh, by Isaiah, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before uh, Christ because it's too specific. And they argued that for a long time, but do you guys remember what happened when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls? They found, uh, nestled in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a text of Isaiah that hadn't been opened for hundreds of years before. I mean, so there was no way... There's really no way that, that that could have been added later. So Daniel becomes really a, a focus or a focal point. It becomes a, a fault line or a battlefront for the credibility of Scripture. And let me say this, by the way, as a side note. Uh, it's really impossible to be a good student of the Bible and not be a good student of history. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about history this morning. I'm not, apolog- not going to apologize for that. We need to be good history students. You know, I, I went to Israel some years ago. Some of you maybe have been there before. What you immediately realize when you visit Israel is that you're not just there to see Jewish culture. You're there to see every culture that's ever really existed. I mean, almost every world empire, well, every world, world ruling empire, and almost every civilization has at one point stacked itself on top of Palestine and Israel. You see them all there. One, of the, one example of that, you go to a city called Megiddo in the, in the, the Valley of Armageddon. It's this, um, you're, you're expecting to see a city, and what you really see is you see this giant lump. And what you realize is the giant lump is like 22 layers of civilization. Because see, every time another empire would come in or another nation would come in, they'd scrape the last one and they'd build right over the top. 
And so what they do, they just dig straight down and they see layer and layer and layer. They got the Canaanites, they got the Israelites, they got the, the, all the otherites, you know, they got the Greeks, they got the Romans, they got the Persians, you got uh, the Turks have been in Israel. You just see all these layers of history. And the reality is, is that the redemptive thread of God's saving work finds its way, it intersects with every culture and every civilization really in history. It's incredible. So, for, you know, passages like chapter eight, because th- this, this, this chapter is going to talk about the Greeks. It's going to talk about specific Alexander the Great and all of these specifics about these empires. It actually gives credibility to the scriptures. Okay, unlike the cult of Mormonism that um, says that there was some kind of a white advanced civilization living on um, in North America during the time of Jesus, yet they have zero evidence to prove that. They have zero archaeological proof. Okay, unlike that, um, the Bible actually has so much, um, so much uh, proof from archaeology. You know, we, we've dug up these places. The places in the Bible are real places. The people in the Bible are real people. Pontius Pilate was a real person, right? Josephus even recorded that Jesus was a real person. The, 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 the history in the Bible matches up so perfectly. So we really need to understand uh, history if we're going to understand um, the Bible. It's extremely important. Now, uh, I want to start with you at the end of the chapter, and that's going to give us some clarity about how to interpret this. So, so skip ahead to the end of the chapter here in verse 26. I just want you to see one sentence. It says, seal up the vision. Okay, the vision we're going to look at. Seal up the vision. In other words, um, put it on the shelf for a moment, for a time, for it refers to many days from now. So what the angel here is, is tipping his hand to Daniel and, and, and calling him to do is saying this vision of chapter 8 is for a future generation, and it needs to be set apart for them, okay? Now, I bring that up, first of all, to say, remember the analogy, what God is going to do here is he's going to pull uh, the Jews out of the boat, this future generation of Jews, and say, look, I anticipated this corner, I anticipated this curve, I anticipated this upset, this struggle that was going to come, and, and, I, and, I've, and I've prepared you for it, and I've given you truth within it. Now, you might ask the question, why did God choose to give revelation to Daniel that was for, you know, three, four hundred years in the future? Why not just give it to that generation uh, right when they needed it? And I think the answer is that the credibility of this prophecy comes in the amount of time that it was given before it happened. I mean, it's incredible that Daniel, uh, by this prophecy, predicts these things, and they come, pl- they, they come true exactly the way that he said that they would. The shelf life gives it immense credibility. Jesus did the same thing for his generation that Daniel's doing for his future generation in the Olivet Discourse, saying this is what's going to happen. Things are going to get crazy, and the same is true in the book of, of Revelation. So let's, let's dig right in, and then uh, we'll, we'll come back and make a couple a couple points. Um, this, this chapter outlines really easy. Uh, if you want to write down a quick outline, just three sections. We have the setting, verse 1 and 2. The seeing, verse 3 through 14. And the meaning, verse 15 through 27. The setting, the seeing, and the meaning. I'll start with the setting. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. 
He's referring to the first as in the one we just looked at in chapter 7. So this is a couple of years after he got the vision in chapter 7, and Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. So if you're just joining us, by the way, for the first time, um, it's good to understand the book of Daniel was written about uh, 600 roughly years before Christ when Israel was exiled by the nation of Babylon. And Daniel, the first six chapters are all of the narrative, and the last six chapters are all of the visions. And they're separated that way, and the visions are sprinkled throughout the narrative. So if we were to go back and see where this vision was given, it was given uh, a couple years into the administration of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar was the king who, remember, was having the drunken orgy with the, the vessels from the temple, and the hand appeared and wrote on the wall, saying, you've been weighed and found wanting. This is that king, and it's a couple years into his administration, about 550 B.C., uh, Daniel apparently still works for this king, is still a statesman, although I think he probably was down in the ranks a little bit because if you remember, um, uh, Belshazzar doesn't necessarily seem to be as familiar with him. Verse two, I saw in the vision and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision and I was at the Ulai Canal. So the placement of this vision is interesting. It's not in Babylon. So Daniel is transported, probably not physically, but, but certainly in, in some kind of a vision. He's transported out of Babylon to the capital of Persia, which is Susa. And you might ask, why is this vision taking place in Susa? And I believe the answer is because this vision has particular um, meaning for Persia, not for Babylon. Okay, it's going to punch into history really right when Babylon is at its place. And, 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 and the place that it's chosen is the citadel. That's the capital. And, and for some reason, he's at this Ulai Canal, which was an artificial canal that ran behind the city. So in the foreground, you have the capital of Susa. And in the, the immediate background, you have this canal. So Daniel finds himself transported to this particular place. Now, it's worth noting, by the way, that Susa, 70 years after this, became the home of a woman named Esther, okay? Esther, again, you know, the, the Bible takes place, all of these historical places. Uh, so Esther's home was in Susa. 107 years later, this would be the home of a man named Nehemiah, who was commissioned to go and rebuild the wall, okay? So there's a lot of significance to this place. But this is where uh, Daniel finds himself. Now, let's see the seeing, verse three. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns. And both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. So Daniel looks up and he sees by the canal this, uh, this ram, okay? A male sheep, this wild ram with these two large horns. And he notices that one of the horns is slightly higher than the other, which might remind you, if, you, if you've been studiously paying attention to these details, it remind, might remind you of the bear in chapter 7 who was slightly higher on one side. Now, here's the good news about this. We don't have to guess who this is, okay? We don't have to guess. I'm not going to come up here and, and take a long shot uh, because the text actually tells us what the goat, or pardon me, what the, the, the ram is supposed to symbolize and what its horns are supposed to symbolize. Glance over to verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, this is the interpretation of it. These are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, Media and Persia. Now, a lot of people don't know this unless you studied history, but the Persian Empire actually uh, used to at one point be the Medo-Persian Empire. 
It was a combination of two empires, Media and Persia, that at one point uh, joined up. But Persia was the stronger, and Persia became ultimately uh, the, the dominant of the two. And so that's what these two horns are supposed to represent. Now, we we've, we've probably know enough about apocalyptic literature by now to know that horns typically represent leaders of empires. Okay, and, and animals or beasts in apocalyptic typically represent the empires that they lead. Verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So this, this ram, which is symbolizing Medo-Persia, has unbridled uh, power for a time, unmatched strength for a time, and that's exactly what happened in history. Okay, Persia, they, they, they took over Babylon without even firing an arrow, and they had quite a, a long season of dominance in the world as a one-world ruling power. But then this, this next thing that happens is, is kind of unexpected in the vision. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Notice that it comes from the west. What is west of uh, Persia, which is modern-day Iran, would be Greece, right? without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. So this is a bizarre picture. Uh, you have this horn that comes out of nowhere from the west, and it's moving so fast that it, it almost appears as though it, it doesn't even have legs. It's just flying in the direction, as we'll see, of this ram. And this particular goat has, rather than two horns like most goats, it has one large horn in the middle, and it's, it's a conspicuous horn, okay, which basically just means it stands out. It's, it's protruding. It's obvious, right? Okay, now what are we to think of this goat? Again, we don't have to guess. The text tells us who the goat is, okay? The text tells us that the goat refers to Greece, the nation of Greece, and we'll see that in the interpretation part, okay? This is the same uh, thing that the leopard was, was uh, depicting, and the thighs of, of an abdomen of bronze in chapter 2. The conspicuous horn, who is that? Well, it, it can only be one person, and everybody agrees. It's the single leader of the Greek empire, who was what? Alexander the Great, okay? Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is a really interesting guy. I mean, he's a really interesting guy. Um, it says, by the way, in verse 21, in case you're wondering how I know that, the goat is the king of Greece, it says in verse 21, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Okay, that's, uh, that's got to be talking about Alexander the Great. What we know about Alexander the Great from history is that he took over the kingdom when he was 22 years old. His father was the king of northern Greece, Macedonia, and his father had just united the north and south kingdoms of Greece before he was murdered. So can you imagine, 22 years old, now you've taken over your father's empire uh, in, in the, in, of Greece. At 22 years old, not only did he manage to keep the power his father had just um, united, but within three years, Alexander the Great conquered the entire Middle East, and within 10 years, he conquered the entire, really the entirety of the ancient world. Alexander the Great was a military genius. He moved with such speed and such ferocity, ferocity. So this is pictured in this vision. Now, keep in mind, that, that doesn't happen for hundreds of years after Daniel. This is predictive prophecy. God is showing Daniel that there is going to be a leader of Greece that is going to come and destroy the, the ram, Persia, with great and amazing speed. You guys tracking with me? Okay, verse 6. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. 
And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So Greece, as we see in history, ferociously dominates Persia and postures itself as the empire of the day. Verse 8, then the goat became exceedingly great. Now here's what happens next. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead, of there, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And there's no guessing. We know exactly what this is talking about. Alexander the Great died at the age of like 32 years old. He died very young, very unexpectedly, very prematurely. And historians argue about what he died from. He probably died from some kind of a disease or sickness. But he had all kinds of problems. He thought he was a god. Okay, so he had all kinds of egotistical problems, alcoholism. Um, but he, he died very young. And his kingdom was not, it was really too large to be overseen or to be managed by one particular king. So what they did was they split it up among the four generals. And that's exactly what the vision says will happen. The horn will get broken off and four will come up in its place. We know exactly who those four generals are. You know, the generals really had all the power. Um, in, in those days, they commanded the armies. So it made sense for the generals to, to sort of divvy up the territory of the Greek empire. Here's the four generals from history. The first one uh, was, uh, and I'm probably gonna pronounce this wrong, but Lysimachus, and he was in charge of the northern kingdom of Greece. We have Cassander, who was in charge of the western part. These next two were very important, and they'll come up more in the book of Daniel. Seleucus was, uh, which is, he, he was, uh, took over the eastern part, which is Syria, and Ptolemy, the southern part, which is Egypt, Okay. And if you studied uh, what's called the intertestamental period, that's the time uh, of the Jews between like the last book of the Bible and Jesus has come. The, those two kingdoms, the Seleucids and the, and the Ptolemaic, they, they constantly were taking over um, uh, Palestine, Israel, constantly. They were, they were constantly being transferred back, transferred back and forth in, in their powers. Now, verse nine, out of one of them came a little horn. <laughs> okay, so we got a big horn, broken off, four horns come up, and out of those four horns, particularly the one, uh, the eastern one, Seleucus, comes an, a little horn. This should bring a bell. There was a little horn in the last chapter. This is a different one, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Glorious land refers to, to Israel. Now, again, don't get this little horn confused with the one in chapter 7. This is a different one, but they have similarities. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, that's referring to the Jews, the believers, it threw down to the ground and trampled them, okay? Uh, so the, the stars here referring to the Jews that this particular leader was going to snuff out, was going to kill. So this, this king of, uh, out, of, uh, out of Greece was going to rise up and was going to rule and govern in the area of Israel, and he was going to have a particular hatred for the Jews, and he's referred to as this little horn. Now, we don't have to guess who this is. We know in history, clearly, his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Can you say Antiochus Epiphanes? God bless you. Okay. Uh, he, he, he's this, this, this really villain, the villain of all villains for the Jews. I mean, if, you're, if we're talking to a Jewish person, they know who this person is, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was devastating to the Jews of the, of the time, of around the second century um, under the Greek rule. 
Antiochus was a prefigurement or a prototype of what we would see as maybe a, some kind of a, a future antichrist, but we'll, we'll get more into that. Verse 11, I'm trying not to lose you guys here. Let's just keep going. It became great, I'm losing myself. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So what is being predicted here is that this person, Antiochus, will rise up and he will persecute the Jews at a particular time in, in history and that he will overtake the temple and he will create sacrilege on the temple, okay? And it's exactly what he did. It's exactly, he became this villain. Now, let me quote Archer here in his commentary. He, he explains how this took place. He says, the suppression came to a head in December 168 BC when Antiochus returned in frustration from Alexandria where he had been turned back by the Roman commander, uh, Popilius, whatever, Leonis, and wanted his, uh, want, invented his exasperation on the Jews. Here's what he did. He sent his general, uh, Apollonius, with 20,000 troops under orders to seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. There he erected an idol of Zeus and desecrated the altar by offering swine on it. This idol became known to the Jews, and you might recognize this term as the abomination of desolation. Are you, have you heard that term before? It's referring to this moment in history, uh, 168 BC, where this Greek king decided not only to slay 40,000 Jews and exile 10,000 more, but to slaughter pigs in the altar to overtake the temple. I'm gonna read for you, and this is probably the only time I'll ever do this, but uh, I wanna read from you an excerpt from the apocryphal book uh, of the Maccabees. Okay, apocryphal just means it's not in the canon of scripture. It's not, uh, it's not the biblical text, but it is historically accurate. It's uh, First Maccabees. Now, the, the Maccabees uh, is, is, a, is a book, a history book, really, um, that records what happened in this particular time in history. And here's what it says. Not long after this, the king sent uh, the Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer live by the laws of their God also to pollute the temple in Jerusalem. This is what happened. And to call it the temple of Olympian Zeus and to call the one in Gerizim, the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers. So what they did is they took over the temple, the temple that was rebuilt by Ezra, and they turned it into a Greek temple for their gods, for Zeus. Uh, it says, as did the people who lived in that place. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil. For the temple was filled with debauchery and, revealing, and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts. So there's temple prostitution happening in the temple in 168. And besides, brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. We know that's the pigs that were slaughtered on the altar. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. So this man literally came in and, and told these guys they couldn't worship. They couldn't worship in the way that God and Yahweh had asked them to worship. Completely took over their temple and turned it into a Greek um, abomination. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. So they were forced to, to defy the laws of God. And when a festival of Dionysus was celebrated, they were compelled to wear wreaths of ivy and to walk in the procession in honor of Dionysus. 
This is forced worship of pagan and false gods. At the suggestion of the people of Ptolemaeus, a decree was issued to the neighboring Greek cities that they should adopt the same policy toward the Jews and make them partake of the sacrifices and should kill those who did not choose to change over to Greek customs. One could see, therefore, the misery that had come upon them. Now, if you're tracking with that, this is what happened to the Jews in the second century under this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, this little horn. 40,000 Jews slain. Now, the good news was that Antiochus died, and he died fairly quickly. And the Maccabees is actually the story about how Judas Maccabeus rose up and, um, and freed uh, the Jews, and for a time, they actually had their autonomy. Now, do you know what holiday actually, re- what Jewish holiday actually represents that? Hanukkah. Yeah, did you know that? Freebie. Okay, there you go. And you can read all about this in the Maccabees. Now, you might be saying, Sam, that's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, it is. Actually, it's right here. It's in the text. The Bible predicted that these things were going to happen. And this is, this is why we need to know our history. It's why we need to understand uh, what, what really happened to God's people uh, in, in that particular time. So keep going. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate? and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. In other words, one of the, the, um, the people goes, how long is this going to happen? How long is the temple going to be turned over to this, this little horn? And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now, scholars argue about how to take that. Um, if it's referring to... Um, one literal day, or if, if, the, if the morning and the evening refers to days, it could add up to about six years, which is about the time Antiochus was uh, ruling. Uh, if it's referring to the feasts, and it would be closer to three years, which is the amount of time he was allowed to persecute the church, or the believers. Now, we, we, we can talk more about that later. Verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So he sees this vision. Let me just recap. He sees this vision. He's all of a sudden transported to Susa, uh, and, and he sees this, this ram that is uh, representing Medo-Persia, and the ram is just running around with total autonomy, total sovereignty, trampling everything, and then out of nowhere comes this wild goat with this massive horn, and it's representing Greece, and Greece comes in like lightning and destroys the ram, takes its place, but then out of nowhere, the, the leader of Greece is going to, to perish and be replaced with four other kings. And out of those four kings comes this little horn. Now, he's like, what in the world am I supposed to do with all this? Remember, this is hundreds of years in the future for Daniel. He wants to know what's going on. So verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Now, this could be the son of man uh, because and we'll see in a minute he's going to command Gabriel to give interpretation. Verse 16, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. That's what always happens when Gabriel shows up. I wonder if he gets tired of it. I don't know. Uh, But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Okay, so, so this is something that's going to happen in the future. Now, that, that can't really be referring to the end of all ends, like we talked about last week. It's, it's the end for this particular time that it's given. Verse 18, and when he has spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Now, I read that, and I'm like, wait, he's in a vision, and then he falls asleep in the vision. You guys ever seen Inception? You ever seen that movie? It's a dream within a dream, okay? 
And then in Inception, there's a dream within a dream within a dream, right? Uh, okay, there we go. Those of you guys that haven't seen the movie are like, what are you talking about? Okay, he, anyways, he's in a vision, and then in the vision, he now has a dream. When he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and bade me stand up. Verse 19, he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be in the latter end of the indignation. Now, he's going to give us the details that we've already kind of um, unpacked. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. We've already talked about that. And the goat is the king of Greece. We already talked about that. The great horn between his eyes is the first king. And as for the horn that was broken in place of, of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. This is talking about Antiochus. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, that is God, and he shall be broken but by no human hand. So that is the, the ultimately the, the explaining of the vision. So what we see here is that God's agency is going to come in and stop this little horn from his destruction. Now, how are we supposed to think about this figure? I'm gonna refrain from spending too much time thinking about him because he's gonna come up again later. But I think how we're supposed to think about Antiochus, this little horn, is we're supposed to think of him as a prefiguring of the future little horn that we read about in chapter seven. He's a dress rehearsal or a prototype for the ultimate evil of God's people, okay, is, is essentially what we're gonna see. Verse 26, let's end it. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. In other words, this is not a metaphor. This is going to happen. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. You ever take in some piece of information that literally makes you nauseous? You find out something or see something uh, that you weren't aware of and all of a sudden, like, you're sick for days. Daniel, he's, he's sick on his bed from this because it's so heavy. What's so heavy about it? What's heavy about it is that he is seeing the prediction that, that a future generation of his people are going to be slaughtered. 40,000 by this little horn. He's seeing this, this, this future reality of great destruction, and even though he sees that ultimately God will be victorious, and even though he sees that the little horn will be put uh, to death, at the end of the day, it's still disturbing to him, and as it really should be uh, for him, right? So he's sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. You got to go to work, right? Okay, you still got to go to work. You can't just call in sick forever, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And I want you to see that Daniel here, I don't think it's that he didn't understand it. it was pretty, it's pretty easy to understand. I think what he means is I don't understand why this has to happen. I don't understand why God's people have to suffer like that. I don't understand why we have to steer the boat towards the rock. That can't possibly be God's will, right? I mean, surely we should just go straight down the river that way. But what God is doing here is he's, he's taking his people 
He's, he's, he's pre-sealing something for them for a future generation. So at some point they can pull this out and they can see that, oh, God was actually anticipating this. This was not an accident. This was not something that wasn't planned for. And even though it appears that they're headed towards the rock, God is actually going to steer them down the chute. This text shows us that we will never enter a space in life that God has not already been and that God has not already anticipated and prepared for us the victory. Now, listen to me. That doesn't mean we're not going to get beat up. Okay, it's, it's, you know, passages like this are really hard for us to, to wrestle with, right? We're like, God, why would you let this guy ravage the saints in the first place? Why would you do that? And, and that's a much harder question to answer. But what I, what I do want to do is I want to zoom out for a moment here as we close. I want to zoom out for a moment, and I want you to see some things that we do now. Because this happened a long time in, ago in history. And because it happened a long time ago in history, we have a little bit more perspective on maybe why God wrote this down in the first place, on why God gave this predictive prophecy, and, and how these particular events um, were used by God and his providence um, to do great things. So let me, let me give you three, and we'll close with this. I want you to consider three counterintuitive and unexpected outcomes that came from these events. Three counterintuitive and unexpected outcomes that came from these events. So maybe write this down. Number one, I was gonna print this in a handout, but I ran out of time. What appeared to be, number one, what appeared to be global domination by Greece was infrastructural preparation for the gospel's global proclamation. Let me say that again. What appeared to be global domination, Greece takes over the whole world, was actually infrastructural, that's a big word, preparation for God's Global gospel proclamation. What could possibly be good news about Alexander the Great taking over the world? What could possibly be good news about the Greek world, this polytheistic, sexually promiscuous, in so many ways, evil nation rising to power and permeating its culture all over the world? You know, there's a word for that. It's called Hellenization. Have you heard that term before? It's the exporting of Greek culture. The Greeks exported their culture all over the world, all the way to Palestine, everywhere, all the way into Israel. Okay, Hellenization. The Greeks literally changed the face of the world. I can't really over-exaggerate to you how much uh, impact the Greek world had on the world we live in. And one of the greatest things that the Greeks gave us by God's kindness and God's providence was a united language. Guess what language? the New Testament was written in. Greek. Yeah, Greek. Koine Greek, which is just common, common Greek. That word koine is the root of koinonia, fellowship, commonality, okay? Koine Greek. And so the Greek language was the first time that there was a common, a lingua franca, a common language that united all, really, of humanity. See, before that, everyone had sort of their own languages, and they still did to some degree. But the disciples in Jesus, they largely spoke either Aramaic or Greek. And the Bible, the Old Testament that they read was actually translated into Greek. The New Testament authors, when they quote the Old Testament, they're quoting from something called the Greek Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It made the Bible accessible for most of the world. What's amazing is that God's ultimate plan of salvation was to send his son into a dark and broken and fallen world to take on the sins of humanity, to, to bear the sins of God's people in our place, to die all in our place, to resurrect from the dead 
claiming victory over darkness, and then the message of that was needed to be exported to the world in order to form the church, in order to build the kingdom of God. Now, if you're gonna do that, you're gonna need a language that's gonna support that. You're gonna need an infrastructure that's gonna support the gospel being spread all over the world. Well, what do you know? A few hundred years before, God allowed this, this horn, who probably really thought he was something else, but really he was God's puppet, to take over the world so that Hellenization would take place so that there would be a language that would bind humanity enough to where the gospel could spread all over the world. Aren't you thankful for that? Looks like we're headed towards the rock, but really God's doing something bigger is my point. You know, there's another thing like that that happens uh, in history, and it's the Roman Empire. What could possibly be good about the arrival of the Roman Empire? Well, if the Greeks gave us a common language, what did the Romans give us? The Romans gave us the Roman roads. The Romans created an infrastructure that made it possible to get to Rome from anywhere in the world. And you read the epistles in the New Testament, and what you're seeing is you're seeing, you're seeing Paul the Apostle writing gospel truth and sending those letters over the Roman roads. You see Paul in his missionary journeys traveling all throughout the ancient world because of the invention of the Roman road. I'm not the first one to point this out. This, this is, this is a, an incredible reality of what we see here. And God knew it all along. He knew it all along. Now, let me give you some real practical application when it comes to this. When you see evil empires and evil world-dominating forces, and when you see dictators or presidents you don't like, either side, or candidates that you don't like, or policies that you don't like, or, or empires that you don't like, and you're tempted to think, man, what are we going to do? I just want you to remember something, especially in this election year, that God is sovereign over our election system. Amen. God does not need either of the two men or maybe women uh, that might be up for election this year. He doesn't need them, okay? I don't care who your guy is, but listen to me. We don't need either of them. Jesus is gonna do what he's gonna do. Amen. We don't need Donald Trump, Christians. I just, like, there's, I just want to say that. There's this, like, this feeling where, like, we need someone who's going to push our, our, our agendas. Like, well, okay, uh, I just, I'll take Jesus, okay? I'm not, I'm not telling you to vote for someone or not vote for that. That's your deal. I'm telling you, we don't need a man. And if there is a man in office, God put him there, and God's going to do what he's going to do with him. So he's sovereign. Just remember that. All the, all, it all comes back to the kingdom of God and the spreading of the gospel. That's the commission of the church. We have to remember that. Jesus didn't send the church to go um, create a, a, a Christian empire. Or, or he, he sent the church to go spread the gospel. And that's what we're supposed to do. And that's what we're going to focus on. And what I want you to see here is that, that all of these powers were used by God in order to export the gospel. He created an infrastructure in order to do so. And that's what we need to keep laser focused on. Okay? The second thing. The second thing I want you to write this down. What appeared to be depressing predictions about future devastations, what appeared to be depressing predictions about future devastations became undeniable proof of the Bible's accreditation. Okay, what I mean by that, how depressing to predict this terrible event that was gonna happen hundreds of years before it happened. What good could possibly come from that? Well, one of the things is, is that the Bible is rock solid in its foundations. And one of the biggest reasons we can trust this thing is because of the astounding accuracy 
of the prophetic, predictive texts that we read in the Old Testament, like Daniel chapter 8. It's incredible. The only reason that you, that you would, would, would really decide to not believe Daniel chapter 8 is because you presuppose that there cannot be predictive supernatural revelation. They don't have a good case. You know, the Bible is rock solid because God made sure that we could see it's trustworthy. And texts like this, even though they might seem dry and historical and okay, yeah, four horns and one horn and one goat and one ram, whatever, they are so specific that there really is no daylight. We, we have to see the confidence that we can have in scripture. We can trust our Bibles. And what that tells us is if God was that right about predicting what was gonna happen in the second century BC, how much more do you think God is gonna be right in the things that he's predicted that we have not yet lived through? I, you know, I'm, I'm tipping my hand, I'm showing my cards here a little bit as to where I sit when I think about eschatology. But I see John, the apostle, as really the New Testament version of Daniel. Daniel was given something and he said, I want you to seal that up, it's not for you. It's for you in part, but, but it's also gonna be for another generation. I think the book of Revelation is the same thing. I think God said, hey, some of this, a lot of it's gonna apply to you, John. It's gonna apply to the exiles. It's gonna apply to, to those that you're gonna write to on, on, on Patmos. But, but some of this isn't gonna make sense because it's going to be for a future generation. I think God has given credibly truth and shown how it's come true and we're gonna see that happen time and time and time again. We're gonna see things work out exactly the way God has said it would in his book. Okay, now don't go too far with that. Don't start trying to figure out what the scorpions are and, you know, whether the beasts or what are the, who the Antichrist is. Like, you can go too far with that. I'm just telling you, we know how it's going to end. Number three, what appeared to be useless information about future frustration served to be sustaining nutrition for those in crippling tribulation. There's a lot of Asians. I should have shortened that a little bit. Wrote that this morning. Uh, what appeared to be useless information about future frustration served to be sustaining nutrition for those in crippling tribulation. I just want you to imagine the Jews that were being persecuted by Antiochus going into the synagogue and pulling off of the shelf the writing of Daniel and seeing that what they are going through was not unforeseen by God. And if you look at this text more closely, what you'll find is that the very center of this is the amount of time until it ends. It's very specific. It's very different from the time, times, and half a time, which is a little bit uh, nebulous. 2,300 evenings and mornings is very specific. And the reason is because God wanted his people to know that you're gonna get beat up, but you're gonna be victorious. It's gonna end. And, and God wanted these believers to be able to go to the shelf and pull revelation off the shelf and see that God had given truth into this place. You know, God's a God that speaks. He's given us truth. The greatest truth that he's given us is his son, Jesus Christ, who's come into this world. And what did Jesus say in the Olivet Discourse? He said, you're gonna have wars, you're gonna have trouble in this world, you're gonna have tribulation, but I want you to take heart, why? Because I've overcome the world. See, God already went down the river. It's, see, it's not just like, well, we gotta, we gotta get down the river right, not blow it. No, Jesus already conquered the river. That's why Jesus said, you, you're gonna have trouble in this world, but take heart because I've overcome it. I've already conquered it. See, the little horn, Jesus already beat him. Je Jesus has been victorious. Now, that's not to say that we're not going to still have hard things. It's not to say we're not going to have tribulation. But in the reality, the victory has already come. 
Jesus has already won. And we live on this side of the cross. We are victorious. And no matter what happens to these bodies, and no matter what happens to our life, no matter how much disappointment we have in this age, we have a future and a hope to look forward to. And we have a God that is eternal perspective, who, if we listen, is going to get us through these corners. Amen? Amen. Our main takeaway should be that there is not even a millisecond of time in this life that you will navigate that is absent of the fingerprints of God's sovereignty. He is involved in everything. Those three words that you want to hear the doctor say, right? This is to be expected. This is to be expected. Yeah, th- <laughs> this is normal. Okay, yeah, whatever it is. We knew this was coming. Okay, the- read the book. Read the book, right? God, God is known. I want, I want to end with this. Deuteronomy 31, 7 through 8. This is, a, this is an incredible, you don't have to go there if you want, you can if you want. This is the moment where Moses is trying to prepare uh, his people to go into the promised land. And here's what he says. Um, he says, Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. And you shall put them in possession of it. Now listen, verse 8. Tell me if this sounds familiar. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Who, who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. See, Moses, Moses was fulfilled by the greater Moses. That was Jesus. And, and just, just like Moses took this moment to remind the Israelites, hey, here's why you can go into Canaan, because God went before you, because God is with you, and because God's never going to forsake you. Jesus said the same thing. He said, I've gone before you, I'm with you, I'm never going to leave you. So, how much do we really have to glean or, or, or learn from stuff that happened in history thousands of years ago? Well, we have a lot to learn, but what I really want you to see is that there is a principle that is proved to be true time and time and time again in the scriptures, and that is God is always one step or many steps ahead of us. He's always in the midst with us, and he's never going to leave us. I, I just want you guys to hear that, because... We get fear crammed down our throat every second of the day, don't you? I just fear, 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 fear constantly. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. This invaded that. This, this person's doing that. It's terrifying. But I want you to remember there is no corner that God has not already taken. And there's no corner that he's not already prepared us for. Amen? Let's pray. Yeah. Oh, what? What did I say? I can't remember. Which part? The whole thing. Okay. Open your Bibles. Uh, <laughs> I can give you my notes, Rosemary. I don't remember which part, but I'll, I'll give them to you later. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. Thank you so much that you know exactly what's going to happen in history. It's so comforting. It's, it's, it's so comforting to know that you are good, that you are in control, that you are strong, that you are capable you have the best in mind for us, Lord. So, Father, I just pray as we now turn to the table, as we consider communion, as we consider the victory of the cross, Lord, that we would be reminded of the fact that you are with us, that you've gone before us, Lord. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.